It's a cool song to sing and a hard one to live. Uh, I had a buddy that I grew up with in high school. His name was Jason Hatch. He was my best friend growing up. Uh, called me a couple weeks ago. He said, hey, man, I got some bad news. And she said, I got some news. And he just got married last September. And I thought, great, you're pregnant. Not Jason, but his wife. Um, sorry, I was waiting for the laugh. And there was a, there were a few over here. Uh, so I thought, man, you're pregnant. That's great. I didn't say that, but I thought, no, what is it? And he said, well, it's kind of bad news. And as the story progressed, uh, Jason told me that his mother, he was camping in Colorado, and uh, they were riding some horses, and they were crossing a river, and uh, his mom's horse tripped and fell, and she fell off and into the river. Long story short, Jason's mom ended up drowning. Yeah, terrible, terrible. Um, funeral was the next week, and, and the, the really rough thing about the whole deal, Jason was a powerlifter in high school, and one of the strongest guys I know, the guy was about 165, 5'7", and deadlifted over 500 pounds. So pound for pound, the guy was a beast. Uh, and is still very just inherently strong, Jason caught his mom by the hand and was not able to hold on. And as she was swept away, the last thing that that she saw uh, person-wise was her son, and Jason watched his mom's face and in her eyes as she went down this river and was swept away and then drowned, helpless, completely helpless. And so I went to the funeral. It was in Colorado. And I had the opportunity and the honor to go in this room and pray with Jason because Jason did the service. Uh, Jason is 26 and such, a, such an inspiration and encouragement. And in this time of distress, in this time of, of sorrow and mourning, and of what in the world, God, how can this happen? Jason stands up, and, and before we went out and we prayed in this room, Jason's heart, it was such an encouragement, Jason's heart was to share the gospel with his family members that he knew that didn't know Christ. And Jason was sad because he lost his mom, obviously, and is still mourning that. But his number one desire and passion in prayer and pleading with God as we prayed was God used today for your glory so that other people may come to know you. And it was well with Jason's soul. He was sad and he mourned just like we're supposed to, but it was well. If you open your Bible to 2 Timothy, we're going to talk today about someone else in similar circumstances, um, not the loss of a mother, but the second letter of Timothy was written by Paul. Many of you have heard of Paul and, and know a lot about him. Paul grew up as a Jewish guy, um, as a Pharisee. Both parents were, were Jewish. He was raised as a Jew, educated as a Jew, grew up in Jerusalem, was born in Tarsus and moved to Jerusalem, uh, as we uh, will reference later, and was educated there in Jerusalem and brought up. Not only that, once Christianity hit the scene and people were following Jesus, Paul basically quarterbacked the persecution of the church. He was the man. He was the main guy doing, doing the thing, killing people, and, and we'll see that here in a little while. Uh, but Paul ends up being converted. God gets a hold of him, uh, changes his life, and Paul begins to do ministry. Um, we see him pick up. If you go to Acts, you can, I'll just reference. You don't have to flip if you don't want to. Um, but through his missionary journeys, we see in, in Acts 16 that Paul picks up Timothy. Um, second missionary journey says, verse 1, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek, and he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because, the, because of the Jews 
who were in those parts, for they knew that his father was a Greek. And so, just quick reference I want you to hold on to for a minute. Paul goes on his second missionary journey, goes into Lystra. He says, there's this guy named Timothy. I want him to go with me. So he takes him. His dad's a Greek, so he's not circumcised. He has him circumcised, and they go and begin to to continue on with their missionary journey. Interesting thing, if you go back into Acts 15, is the Council of Jerusalem, where they actually debated the issue of circumcision, whether Gentiles had to be circumcised to now be a part of God's family. And there were Jewish Pharisees that were pushing this issue, and Peter and Paul and Barnabas and all the apostles and disciples and these guys argued against, and they came out knowing that, okay, as a Gentile, you do not have to be circumcised to be a Christian. But yet in the next chapter, right after this, Paul leaves him and Barnabas go off on the missionary journey. They pick up Timothy, and they circumcise him. Put it in your back pocket. Hang on. We're going to get there. You just got to hang on, okay? All right, so doing his thing. He's got, he's got Timothy with him. He picks him up. Um, but we can go back to, to the book of Timothy. We're going to jump just a little. And I'm sorry about that. Just hang on. So he writes this letter to Timothy, who is obviously someone who's been a ministry companion with him. As we know throughout Scripture in, in different writings and things, Tim and, Timothy and Paul were very close. Uh, Paul viewed Timothy even as his own son and the fact that he brought him up in the faith and he discipled him. He walked with him. He encouraged him. And in this letter, it's interesting that this is believed to be Paul's last writing. He is in prison in Rome, and he knows he's going to be killed. If we look in, in chapter 4, uh, in verse 6, Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. So from his language we see, this is actually when Paul writes... For I am being poured out as a drink offering. The second time he's used this reference in all of his writings. The first time was back in Philippians when he said, if I am. And he didn't actually state that I'm being poured out. But he says, if. And they believe that was in his first imprisonment, which was more of a political issue than a he's in trouble. Uh, But this time instead, in this letter he writes, his language is clear that the end is near. I'm fixing to die. And he writes this letter to Paul as an encouragement with some instruction to continue on, to press on, to keep doing what he's called to do, and to live out a lifestyle of worship for the goal, for the purpose simply of sharing the gospel with those who don't know God. Paul's main purpose. And so Paul was able to sit in a prison cell, know that he was going to die, and it be well enough with his soul to write his friend, his companion, to encourage, to strengthen, and to teach, to press on. So what can we learn from this letter? We're going we're gonna to focus mainly in chapter 2 today and talk about, as Christians, what are the things that we're supposed to do to live out, to be in this position? To be in a state where we know that our number one priority is our relationship with Christ, but our focus is on sharing the gospel with those that don't know God. It's very easy in America to be consumed with everything around us. Material things, success, family things. There are a ton of issues that take our focus off what our main priority should be. 
So we're going to talk about how, how we deal with those things and, and how we get through it. So he writes to encourage Timothy. Starting out in, in verse 1, chapter 2, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So Paul gives Timothy these three examples of the soldier and the athlete and the farmer. We're not going to go in depth and, and break down and tell you what each one specifically means. The overlying idea is these people are all diligent in what they do. The soldier obeys his orders and serves his commanding officer and does exactly what his job is supposed to do. Not worried about my family back home and I may not see them again or what's going on around. My purpose is to go in and do exactly what my officer told me to do. Which is the same today as it was back then. And to serve effectively. How many of you guys saw Band of Brothers? Great movie. There's a lot of cussing. But great movie. They're always cussing in, in war movies. But it's a series about, uh, is it the 101st, Pat? Yeah. My father-in-law, Pat Mars, is a huge World War II buff. And so any questions I have, he will be able to answer. But it's a story about the 101st Airborne Division throughout World War II. And what they do, it's like a, it's like a six-movie series, and they focus on different characters. Well, one of the series, they're focusing on a character who's really struggling with engaging in combat. Um, when he first lands on their first jump, he falls asleep in a foxhole and doesn't do anything for about a day and a half, catches up with his unit, and then ends up, any time they go into battle, he will hide and not help, not even shoot his gun. He won't do anything because he's terrified. And so they're on their way to another battle, and he's sitting in a foxhole, and some things are happening, and he's just scared to death. You can see by his actions, his words, and all that he's doing. And a commanding officer walks up to him and begins to discuss his situation. And he makes this statement. He says, you just don't get it. He says, what? He says, well, you're completely ineffective because you don't realize you're already dead. He said, the only way that you're going to be effective in battle is to accept the fact that you're already dead. You have to stop worrying about everything around you. And you have to focus on what's my purpose. And as a soldier, take the objective. I can't worry about if I die in that or not. Because the objective is bigger than me. And once they learned that, they were able to function as soldiers. Just like here, the soldier is diligent at his task. Much as the athlete is the same. An athlete who's not diligent in practice and workouts and even in the game is completely ineffective. The farmer, if he's not diligent in his work, doesn't get to eat. If he doesn't plow, plant, pray for water and go pick it up, he has no food. So the concept here is diligence. going to have to put that one in your other pocket because we're coming back. So he keeps going. We're going to go down to verse 14. It says, Remind him of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words, which is useless and leads to the ruin of its hearers. Wrangle about your words because it leads to the ruins of your hearers. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3, there's another reference similar to this language reference in what we talk about. 
says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about, disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved of the truth. If you didn't catch all that, Paul specifically addresses those who are false teachers. But from that, we see the result. What does false teaching, teaching bring about? In our churches today, some of us get so consumed that church is about me. I love the Me Church video, if you've seen it, that Ron shows. It's really silly, but it's awesome. Because it's such a good depiction of church is about me. It's about what I connect with, the music that I like. Can I walk in and do my thing? Do I like the teaching? Do I like the areas that I get to serve in? Am I happy that I get to teach or that I get to sing? Not only do we have this mindset, but when things don't work our way, the things we begin to talk about and discuss with others. And I'll read the list again. This is what false teachers going against the doctrine of Jesus Christ brings. He is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about, about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men. When we focus on us, the church becomes completely ineffective for the purpose. We so often forget. There's a Sunday school lesson coming out of John 6 and Jesus feeding the 5,000. And the story is about the little boy who brings his lunch. He's got five loaves of bread and he's got two fish. And when you're seven years old, your Sunday school teacher tells the story and he says, Are you willing to give your lunch? Would you be willing to bring what you have to the table for God to use? When in fact the lesson should be, we should be in awe and amazed that God would even be willing to use our lunch. Because church isn't about us. The statement I love to use with my students is that the whole Jesus dying on the cross thing, that was all about us. Everything else is about God's kingdom. And so, continuing on, Paul actually makes three different references about language in this passage that we're going to use. Number one is the wrangling of the words. If you skip down to verse 16, it says, But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene, which can also be translated as cancer if you have a different version of the New American Standard. Things that are ungodly in our words and our actions will eat us alive spiritually. And again, render our church completely ineffective for the purpose that God has set us out to, to serve. And so going back up, number one with our words, we've got to make sure that we are that we're in check. If you've got a problem, and Ron's been great about this, our church is awesome about this, and I've not seen a church do such a good job. If you have a problem, go to somebody and talk about it. Go address it. Get it fixed. 
and not your friend that sits next to you, but rather somebody that's an elder or a pastor and deal with it properly. But I encourage you, before you do that, make sure you check yourself that it's not just your junk that you're wanting to talk about. Crack open your Bible. Read a little bit about the early church and what God was doing. Do you fit in anywhere in your argument? If you do, that's great. Make it. If you don't, please don't. So, anyways, I'm not, I'm not attacking anybody. I'm sorry. If you're mad and want to throw things, go ahead. I'm pretty quick. Okay, we're going to go back up. Verse 15. Here's what we really want to focus on today. Verse 15, Paul says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handing the word of truth. Be diligent to present yourself. Again, those three examples we saw of the soldier and the athlete and the farmer. Be diligent to present yourself to God. You have to make a conscious effort to be faithful in being a workman for God. I, keep, I, uh, I teach um, strength and conditioning or coach strength and conditioning at Coram Dale, which is a private school here in Flower Mound, and I work with the football players. Uh, and throughout my experience with football, football players, especially high school football players, I've found that there are two kinds, predominantly two kinds of football players in this world that are in high school. There are those who play football that love football. They love to get hit. They love to hit people. They love to get hit. They don't care what color their uniform is. They don't care if they've got the right gloves on or the, the bands, which I love, uh, the gloves and the bands and all the outfit. Um, they don't care about any of that. They just want to play ball. And you can see it on Friday night on game day. They're out there kicking their tail, trying to make things happen. You see it on Monday when we come back to the weight room, that they are busting in the weight room. And they're encouraging the people around them. They get the idea of the team and that they're not the, the number one guy on the team. They understand that concept. And they're playing football because they love the game. And when they leave, they are going to be very sorrowful for the rest of their lives. September through December will be an awful time when they see the lights on Friday night of longing to go back because they love the game. The other type of high school football player is the guy who loves the idea of being a high school football player. He is the one who wears the bands and the gloves and the socks just right. I, I really like to get hit myself, though. Um, he loves the idea. He loves walking out of the tunnel on Friday night and standing on the sidelines with his helmet hooked onto the back of his pads, and everybody goes, I know that guy. He's a football player. He turns around and waves to mom and dad. Look at me. Ah! And on Monday, he's joking around in the corner of the weight room, not doing anything. And I have to go chew him out. On Friday night, he is completely ineffective for the team. He's not blocking. Number one, he probably doesn't know his assignment. Number two, he's too scared to hit somebody. And when he leaves the game, he will not long to go back, but he will be very excited to tell his college buddies that he played high school football. One of those is diligent and effective. And the other one is completely worthless. And in fact, they make me mad because they still have time to play and I don't get to go play. 
God says to be diligent, to present ourselves to prove. A lot of us like the idea of being a Christian. It sounds really cool. A lot of us like to come in and sit in church or talk with our buddies who are Christians that are sharing their faith with others or growing or doing different things. And that sounds real cool. And we like to put on the outfit and do the smile and the little dance. And we love the idea of being a Christian and knowing Jesus. But we are completely ingenuine and have no diligence in our relationship with the Lord. And we are completely ineffective for His team. Love the story in Matthew 14 and Peter in the boat when he gets out and he walks out on the water. Such a fun story because here's these 12 guys are hanging out on a boat. Jesus comes walking on the water. They're all terrified. And Peter gets this idea. Hey, Jesus, call me out there. Watch this, guys. And Jesus says, come on, dude. And he jumps out of the boat and he starts walking. Everybody dogs Peter for what he did because he lost his faith and sank and Jesus had to catch him, all these things. Peter's one of two that walked on the water. Peter got out of the boat. A lot of us have no action in our faith. A lot of us need to sit down and open our Bible. A lot of us need to learn what it means to be a soldier for Jesus and to sit down with our kids and open our Bible and to pray with our kids and to let them see us pray. A lot of us need to lean over to the cubicle next to us and say, hey man, what do you think about God? A lot of us need to genuinely love our neighbors. Two greatest commandments, loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbors. We have to be diligent. We have to be intentional in order to do those two things. So it keeps going. It says, Be diligent to present yourself as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handing the word of truth. Now here's a tough one. The word of truth is obviously our Bible, which in Ephesians 6 is referred to as our sword, which is our only offensive weapon. Many of us have no idea how to use the thing. Partially because many of us have never cracked it open. And if we have, we haven't made the effort to figure out what the world is talking about or what it really does mean. There are a lot of things in Scripture that we like to grab and apply to life and go, this is awesome, let's run with it. And we're wrong because it's out of context and we don't know what we're talking about. It's ineffective. I had a Chev- My first truck was a 79 Chevrolet Silverado. My dad bought it on my first birthday and kept it until I turned 16. He then bought another truck that was a 96 Chevy that he still has today. So, two trucks. man does not, not give up on a truck easily. So, I got the 79. The 79 was a long bed. Like I said, Silverado. It was the heavy half of the Big Ten. And it was black. It was awesome. It had a 350 in it with dual exhaust. And it topped out going downhill in Amarillo with the wind behind you at 100. I think... Here was the problem. That Chevy 
which my grandpa now has and calls Midnight. It has marks all over it, like dents in the side and crushes and from when I drove it. Um, but when you drive from about zero to 50, speedometer was pretty accurate. Pretty accurate. When you started to get after it and things got a little sporty, when you get up to 100, that baby would bounce from about 80 to 100. And I, I had no idea how fast I was going. Because that, that thing is just moving like crazy. A lot of us are pretty accurate with the simple stuff. We got John 3.16 down. Good job. Excellent work. We might be able to tell somebody about our story and our conversion experience when we met Jesus. But when things get a little sporty, we are completely inaccurate. Now, how many of you guys are into YouTube? I watch it every once in a while. I catch the crazy Japanese game shows. Yeah. Um, Oprah was on one, though. And there was a debate between Oprah and a group of Christians. It was really funny. It, wasn't, it was sad. They say funny. And they were debating this issue about Jesus, whether he was the only way or not. And Oprah would make her argument, and the Christians would make their argument. And the cool thing about the Christians were, this goes along with loving other people. When a Christian would make a comment, the whole crowd of Christians would cheer. They'd be like, yeah! Whoa, what's up, Oprah? Thanks, guys. Awesome. And so, they started making comments about Scripture and what God's Word says. And it came to, uh, Oprah said, and this is, is a pretty good question in dealing with faith and people who believe in different things. She said, well, what do you do with the people, if Jesus is the only way, what do you do with the people who have never heard the gospel? What happens with them? Which is a legitimate question. In our group of Christians representing us in the corner on the Oprah show, thank goodness, had about the same accuracy as my 79 Chevy. And this woman stands up and she says, well, the Bible says that the gospel has to be shared with the four corners of the earth before Jesus could come back. So you figure it out. And again, we cheered. Yeah. Number one, she had no idea where the reference was at, which tells us plainly she has no idea what the reference is talking about. Number, number one, she made us look like a bunch of morons. And she was completely ineffective for God's kingdom. Her intent was good. Share the truth with those who don't know. But if you can't accurately handle the word of truth, don't. And I don't mean don't and give up. Open your Bible. Ask questions. Get a commentary. Call your pastor. Many of you may think, I have a job. I have a family. I have kids. I have a softball game on Friday nights. If our number one priority is going to be sharing the gospel with people, we have to be able to use this thing. And so he says, be diligent. Actively handing the word of truth. He goes on to talk about those who have, have shared things and uh, again with the, with the language and the words and that are, that are ungodly and what it has caused. We're going to pick up in verse 20. He says, now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels but also vessels of wood and earthenware and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself of these things, he will be a vessel of honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. 
Now, these aren't huge metaphors and big pictures for us to explain. Again, it's be diligent. Right after that, he says, flee your, your youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. In order to be useful for God, we must run from evil and sin and pursue what's godly. Verse 23, so we're going to get ready to wrap it up, says, But refuse foolish and ignorant speculation, knowing that they produce quarrels. So there's the third reference of language, words being used. He says, Avoid foolish and in, uh, ignorant speculation, because they produce quarrels. All it does is going to make an argument. It's going to be ineffective. As Christians, we really like to get around and debate different issues and what we think and different interpretations especially the end-time ones. And not that those are foolish, but if we're just going to argue and be mad about things, we probably shouldn't be talking about it. But going back, like I said, in Acts 16, you can pull that one out of your pocket. Paul says avoid these speculations that produce quarrels. Because right after it says, the Lord's bondservant must, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all. Not only does Paul write and tell him, don't be quarrelsome, but he lived it out for him. Paul picks up Timothy and has him circumcised so that he can go into the synagogues and share the gospel with those who are Jews. Those in the area knew about Timothy's father. They knew he wouldn't have been circumcised, and so had he not done it, Paul would have had to debate the issue. Paul was right in his debate of the issue and probably could have argued it well. But Paul's purpose was not to go in and argue about circumcision. He wanted to tell people about Jesus. So he avoided it altogether. Great example that Paul lives out and shows Timothy and then reminds him. It says, but be kind to all. Just before that, in Acts 14, is the account of Paul and his first missionary journey. Ironically, he's in Lystra and they stone him. Which I think is interesting because the way we view churches and we, we look at numbers and how many people get saved and we call who's effective and ineffective. And if we go back to our New Testament and we see the people who got stoned and dragged out of cities and hanged and killed, in our interpretation, they wouldn't have been very effective. Anyways, that's a side note. You can take that home and write it if you want. And so he says, be kind to all. Chapter 14, Paul is stoned, dragged out of the city, and thought to be dead. And the language is pretty plain. It's very simple. It doesn't go in depth under what, what Paul talked about when that happened. But it says he got up and he went back into the city, him and, him and uh, the other apostles. And the next day, they went to the next town, and they started telling people about Jesus. And there's a reference that Paul makes, and he says, we're going to face a lot of tribulation on our way to heaven. Paul's mindset was not, dude, you guys stoned me. Why? That's terrible. You threw rocks at me. You tried to kill me. I'm not sharing Jesus with you. The cool thing about Paul was Paul lived in such a way before he knew Jesus that once he met Jesus, he now had a heart for those people that were just like him. We see that in Acts 22. Just after Paul has been 
consumed by this mob as he goes back to his hometown after the third missionary journey. He goes back into Jerusalem and these Jewish people just attack him and they're trying to tear him apart and he's saved by the Roman officials. And he goes back and as he's kind of held by these Roman guys and this crowd is still here, Paul gets up and he shares his testimony with the people that just tried to rip him to pieces. And he shares in a way, not that he's better than them, but he shares with them his heart and his relationship with Jesus and his desire for them to know that. Paul finishes up. It says, Be able to teach, which goes back to your being able to use your Bible. It says, Be patient with wrong, when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If, forget, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. As I said before, our lives are so easy to be, to, be, to be distracted by the things around us and the things that we want and the things that we like with our own life, with our own health, which takes us away from our main purpose in life, which is to share Christ with others. And so Paul writes and lives out and encourages Timothy and the rest of us to live in a way that if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. Let's pray. Dear God, I come to you now. And I just thank you so much for the fact that we get to know you. That we get to know the God who created the world, uh, even though we are sinners, and we are not worthy, God. We just thank you for that. Thank you for um, our church, the blessings that you've given us, uh, the things that we've got to see you do uh, in our lives. Again, thank you for your love and forgiveness. Pressure and pray. Amen.